Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I chat with Steve Johnson, the founder and chief investment officer of Forager Funds. Steve and I chat about markets generally, the sectors and opportunities of interest in the wake of COVID-19, how investors have got the stock market rally wrong, the psychology of investing through a crisis just like this one, and I guess value investing generally. Of course, Steve also shares a few stock stories and opportunities slash additions to the portfolios, and one in particular which caught my interest is Uber Technologies. Steve and I talk about that opportunity at about the 12-minute mark. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Steve, thanks for joining me back on the show, mate. 
great to be on. Um, for those who perhaps haven't seen the first instalment um, where I talked to you and um, about the forager story and your story, I, I'd highly encourage everyone to go back and listen to that before um, hearing Steve's thoughts on the markets today. But um, I thought it'd just be a good opportunity to, to get you in. I've, I've been reading some of your stuff lately. There's been a few portfolio editions which I thought were, um, maybe some people thought they were pretty hairy, but I thought they were, you know, they were, I think the thesis there is pretty clear and I can see why you like it. So I'm keen to talk about one of those today. Um, but also you've been doing a few videos for your blog and for your YouTube channel, which I've been tuning into each week and they've been really engaging. So I thought maybe we could um, talk to some of those and um, yeah, just get your thoughts on the market. And I think a, a great place to start was not to timestamp this conversation too much, but we, you know, we saw this week that Australia is heading for a recession. I don't think that's a surprise for many people, but we've seen a lot of stimulus in the US, we're seeing riots in the US, we're seeing stimulus in Europe. All of this, I guess, during COVID and post-COVID recovery, we're talking, you know, some big macro ideas here. People are just trying to think, you know, just what has the market gone too far? How do we make sense of this? So I'm just going to throw it over to you. Maybe we can just go back and forth. Maybe you can take it in, in two lenses, the local market and then internationally as well. Yep. So a couple of things from my perspective, I actually don't have a strong view at the moment. I sort of sit there and I look at it and I say, well, I didn't think our Aussie market in particular was stupidly overpriced back in February. Hmm. I think the magnitude of what's happened here has probably been less than would have been feared for sure at the bottom. And, you know, we've still got a market that is down 14 or 15% from that level. So I, I I think that's probably roughly fair and, and okay. From my perspective, it's still quite exciting because within that overall market level, you've had a lot of very, very differential performance. So some stocks are back trading at their all-time highs. Other stocks haven't yet recovered. And you know some of those that they haven't yet recovered and in our portfolio in particular are coming out and saying, we're actually doing okay here. And there's a huge amount of government support. And I think people are probably underestimating the the level of government support here for the Aussie market. So that, that's the big picture in terms of where I sit at the moment is that it's probably roughly fair. I recorded that video last week and, and have been engaging in a bit of debate about it because I think framing the question is really, really important here. I think people are looking at where the market was two months ago and saying it's up a long way, therefore it must be overcooked uh, rather than where is it relative to where it was back in February and is that appropriate? Because I think if the market had fallen 20 and we'd recovered five to get to where we are today, a lot of people, even with the market at the exact same level that it is at, will be saying, well, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. It's the magnitude of the recovery that's got everyone, I think, surprised and concerned. And I actually think it was the magnitude of the fall that was massively overdone and that has created the room for this recovery rather than today's absolute level of the market being stupidly optimistic. I still see plenty of businesses that, you know, are going to earn in a more normal environment profits that could give you very high returns here relative to today's interest rates. Do you think it's a combination of the, I guess, the velocity? Like you kind of touch on the speed at which the markets fell and then come back. I think we've we've got the anchoring bias aside there, but you know there were headlines. It's the you know the fastest crash, and then you see this giant recovery. Do you think that plays into more of the thinking than I guess, like you said, the absolute level? And I have never ever seen anything like it. I'll be very clear about that. I mean, the financial crisis for me was sort of a slow burning, blow up after blow up. 
uh, you know, the, the market took a long time to wake up to the reality there. Some people arguing that this is the same, but the speed of what happened in March, I have never seen anything like it. I've never seen markets as dysfunctional as that either. Just the lack of liquidity, the lack of a clearing mechanism for a lot of, in some cases, fairly large companies. You know, we had businesses in our portfolio that were down 20 and 30% in a day on a couple of thousand dollars worth of shares traded. And people are looking at that saying the value of my company is down 30% here. And I just look at it and go, someone exchanged a thousand dollars worth of shares with someone else for a stupid price. Does that really impact the value of what things are? So I think that speed is really, really important. And it has contributed, I think, to the surprise around the recovery. I also think the psychology is really important about what, what I think people misunderstand what the stock market actually is. They just equate, okay, we're going to have a recession, therefore the stock market is going to go down. But investors and the stock market were thinking about that back in March. So the question is not, are we going to have a recession? It's, are we going to have a recession that is going to be worse than what people thought yesterday? And if the answer to that question is no, then people are probably sitting there saying, well, I thought yesterday it was going to be really, really bad. Today, I think it's going to be a little bit better. Therefore, I will pay a slightly higher price for the future. And I'm really trying to frame that question. I think particularly for a lot of retail investors, it's important that the stock market is not the economy. It's the expectations of the future rather than what we're looking at today. Mm. I think that's the thing, right? You see, and we, I know you're quite prevalent on Twitter and I, I sometimes um, read some musings on there. We see that quite a bit. Right. People are really they're anchoring their expectations, you know, to what might be the facts from last quarter. For example, they see recession and they think, how can the stock market be going up? But people have to remember here that it's, it's forward looking. And I think you bring this back quite often to, you know, multiples of profit and multiples of cash flow and that type of thing. So when you're looking at these companies, I guess, is, you know, that's probably where you're seeing. That's how you're gauging value, gauging expectations rather than just say absolute levels or prices. No, absolutely. And it's a pretty simple exercise for us. The first gate is, is the business going to survive the environment that we're going to go through? So you need to get confident about that. We've been doing a lot more, even the past few weeks, I think, in the more cyclical end of the market, the stuff that is going to suffer here but is going to recover later. And we've been switching out of some of the things that have, not completely out, but rebalancing out of some things that have done very well for us into some of that later cycle stuff. And you run the risk there that we have a resurgence or the economic downturn is worse. So we're still in that space focusing on businesses. They're going to suffer, but they're going to survive. So have you got the balance sheet? Have you got the operational resilience here to get through this? And then next really important step is, can I find a business that is going to suffer, but is going to come out of this in a stronger competitive position? And I think that's one of the most exciting opportunities at the moment is some of these businesses that are going to lose money this year. Like It'll be loss-making but their competitors are going to lose a lot more and their competitors are going to be strategically challenged for a long time to come. And in two or three years' time, you're looking at these businesses going, the profit margins are higher than ever before, the mm. market share is higher than ever before, and I've made many, many multiples of my money. So we're absolutely focused on that first gateway. Is it going to survive? And then what does it look like in a normal environment? How long do we think it's going to take to get there? And what sort of return am I going to be earning on today's purchase price in that environment? and trying to find the most attractive of those those that are out there. So it's really, I find it a lot simpler to think about that. And I think if you had that conversation with most people, you probably wouldn't have had too many arguments. Mm. At the point where the market was down 40, most people would have said to you, you're probably going to earn 20% per annum on some of these businesses in two or three years' time, and I feel pretty confident about that. 
I'm just not confident investing in this environment because I'm worried that prices are going to fall further. Yeah, that's, a, that's funny you say that because I, I think we all overestimate ourselves. But even I was thinking to myself, oh, you know, I, I don't like to think big picture but, um, about the economy and, and top down. But I was looking at some of these businesses and I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, but there's so many unknowns and blah, blah, blah. But then some people coming up to me and saying, you know, what is the chance that this business is going to be around in a year? Okay, you're over that hurdle. Then what's the, you know, the likely outcome for that industry for the business? I think that's such a simple framework to apply, but it's so effective as well. You mentioned there that you, you've kind of shifted towards, I guess, the, the latest cycle uh, recovery, those kinds of companies. Do you have any examples of them? We're about to get to one that's kind of like that medium to longer term view for you, but anything in that, that kind of that mid-range bucket? Uh, yeah, for sure. I'll give you two maybe in our two different funds. So Wizz Air in our international fund is a low-cost airline in Europe. People might be familiar with or more familiar with Ryanair and EasyJet. Yeah. This is an Eastern European competitor to those guys, although they don't actually overlap on a huge amount of routes. But uh, similar economics, really high return on uh, equity historically, ability to deploy more and more capital into markets as they increase market share, and in this business's case, you've just got a fairly low penetration of flying in a lot of Eastern European countries that are growing quite quickly and that penetration is growing quite quickly. So uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful business. And, and Ryanair and EasyJet have as well. I think people see airlines and, and think, I never want to invest in an airline because Warren Buffett wouldn't. In that low-cost space, there have been some really wonderful businesses there over a long period of time. Now, so that question I was saying before, is it going to survive? This business has got 20 months' worth of liquidity, assuming not one person catches one of their planes. Uh, their results are out last night. They're saying they're going to be 60% capacity uh, in the third quarter of the year and then 80% capacity in the fourth quarter of the year. And a lot of those Eastern European countries are starting to recover quite quickly. So I think that's one good example of a, a business that I think can be really strong and, and we might want to own for a decade here as, as this rollout and this reinvestment of capital happens. But the earnings are going to be cyclical and I would guess it's going to lose money over the course of the next 12 months but come out of it much stronger. Uh, one in the Aussie fund, I mean, we've owned it since the bottoms of the market here and been buying pretty aggressively. But And the last few days have changed the equation a little bit here, but Tourism Holdings, which is listed in New Zealand. We buy Kiwi companies in our yep. uh, Aussie fund as well. This is a camper van and RV business. Apollo Tourism and Leisure competitors listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Uh, we think that Kiwi business is a bit better business in terms of market share, a stronger balance sheet as well. And I think that space is probably going to recover in the tourism space much quicker than overseas travel. You're going to see people, mm. Aussies going to New Zealand and wanting to use camper vans. We're already seeing in the US interest in that space is, is up dramatically. In fact, it's higher now than it was pre-COVID as people are considering domestic holidays. And uh, Tourism Holdings THL has got a pretty big US business as well. So they're two examples of businesses that are going to have really tough years when you look at their financial results that are coming. But I think if you look out two or three years, you're paying a really, really attractive price for both of them at, at today's levels. Yeah, it's, it, they're, they're two interesting businesses. Um, is Tourism Holdings a large company? Uh, sort of, I mean, 300 million market cap at today's prices and we probably think it's worth double that. So, you know, it trades between 700,000 and a million Kiwi dollars a day. So it's in the illiquid bucket for us. We want to be careful about how big those position sizes are. Um, 
but it's something that does trade rather than a tiny micro cap. Mm. Why don't we um, talk a bit more about overseas uh, markets? You, we, we, we see in the news, uh, particularly the last month, you know, I guess a lot of upheaval in places like the United States and obviously just coming out of COVID in, in Europe. Um, one company that you've identified uh, is a business that I know that you've received a fair bit of feedback on, good and bad, and that's um, Uber, Uber Technologies. So uh, many people will be familiar with it as a ride-sharing business. Um, it's one of those ones that comes to the market just before COVID and um, people are thinking, yeah, you know, is it one of those sexy tech stocks? It's not really a tech stock. And um, I imagine um, some of the feedback you got being a quote-unquote value investor was was a bit hairy. So maybe I can maybe I can get you to talk to the, the, the big picture stuff and then um, maybe we can step through some of those, I guess, misconceptions about the company and, and the strategy that you've um, employed there to, to really find that value. Yep. I mean, I've always been interested in the business because I just, the, the perception that it is going to be a loss-making business forever, it just doesn't sit right with me. This is basically an app and they've got huge market share in a lot of Western countries for ride sharing. And I've always said, if you really cut back on the marketing here, you've got a pretty loyal customer base that's going to keep using your product. And how much does it actually cost you to run the data centers and develop the app and keep working on that stuff? So if you wanted to just stop today and say, we just want to milk the user base that we've got, you could have a very, very highly profitable business there. Now, historically, and the reason that we didn't invest it around the in and around the float was you didn't have any confidence that it was going to be run in that way either now or at any point in time in the future you know there was a guy who founded the business and was running it and was probably the right person to get it to where it got to in terms of its market shares but was just focused on growth at all costs so a couple of triggers for us first change of management team guard it comes to ipo with a lot of promises about running this more uh, efficiently and running it for cash and I've just seen, you know, it's been a model that has worked very well for us in our fund to buy some of these loss-making businesses where all the value investors are looking at it and saying, oh, I'm never going to buy a loss-making company when you can paint a really clear path for how it goes to profitability in the future. And all of these businesses are high customer acquisition costs, whether it's a Zero or an Uber or any of these businesses, you spend a lot of money acquiring a client and you expense that. So Zero signs up a client cost them say a hundred dollars to acquire them and get that client on board and they get the revenue monthly so in the first year you might have a hundred dollars of cost and only ten dollars of, of revenue but then you're going to collect thirty and forty dollars of revenue every year at almost no cost for a very long period of time so you the more customers you sign up the more expenses you're reporting the more money you're losing but you're creating all of this value and i think that model has been proven time and time again and people should be more aware of it than they are but I think it's a bit the same with Uber, although it's not the same marginal economics. You've got a lot more costs here. So I've been interested. I've been following it. It floated. The share price got hammered as a lot of insiders started selling their stock. They reported a couple of really good results. New CEO starting to deliver on some of those promises about moving towards profitability quite quickly. And then COVID. So we'd missed the opportunity, right? The share price is $27 up to 45 COVID-19 hits and at one point Uber was trading down at 15. So we worked really hard to get the internal sign-off process done quickly. It had jumped to 25, you know, the next day, basically. That's how quickly things were moving then. But I think our average entry price is about 24. 
Uh, and I just think it's a really interesting example of a business that is widely, widely misunderstood by people. Although if you go and read any of the, everyone has the same thesis as us in terms of the numbers that's actually writing the research on it, that we're, we're moving towards profitability here in 2022 and 2023. But the setup for me was a stock that is widely, widely pilloried out there. And, and I, I like looking for situations where I think there's a real consensus view and, you know, you're never going to say it's completely wrong, but I think the probability of that consensus view being right is much lower than is attributed in the share price. So for us, it's probably not a business that we want to bet on it being hyper successful and massively profitable. But I think at $24, you're paying a pretty low price for the world's biggest ride sharing company. Yeah, you touched on a few things there. And I only um, worked this out once I read your your write-up on, on it, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, some of the markers in which it operates, it has 65% market share of ride sharing, which is incredible. Uh, when you think about that, it's so dominant in some of these markets. And when we talk about competitive advantages, we talk about you know economies of scale. Um, obviously, it's invested a lot in infrastructure. It's got that marketing war chest that it can throw at new cities or opportunities if it needs to. Um, one of the pieces of feedback that you got was that the company really shouldn't even exist and it's being propped up by cheap VC capital. What's your response to that? Yeah, well, I, I outlined this in some detail in the blog, but I think there's a very, very good reason why the business exists. The, the first one is that you're competing against the taxi industry that is effectively overcharging because it's heavily, heavily regulated. So governments around the world restrict the number of licenses. They control the pricing. On a Friday night, you can't get a cab because there aren't enough of them, but that makes the license plates for these taxis. You know, in Sydney, you were paying $400,000 to buy the license to operate a, a taxi at the peak prior to the ride-sharing guys arrive. So I look at that and I, and I think whether you agree with it or not, these guys that are coming in in an unregulated market don't have to pay that $400,000 and there's a huge amount of economic value there that's to be split up between Uber customer getting a lower price and the driver getting at least the same as they were getting driving a taxi before. So I think there's a regulatory reason for the business to exist. The other thing I think is really important is the product works mm. and it works really well. So I'm not a, I'll get taxis from work home all the time because it's easier for me to walk outside the building. There are cabs everywhere and I just jump in the cab. I get Ubers from home when I want to go somewhere on a weekend all the time because it's much easier for me to order it to my house and the product just works and people underestimate how hard usability is to get right. I mean, you run a digital business, so you've thought a lot about it and you realize how difficult it is. But as a consumer, the things that work best, you don't notice. The thing, as soon as something doesn't work, as soon as it's slow, as soon as it doesn't load, as soon as the car doesn't turn up, you get angry, you don't notice it. But as long as Uber's working smoothly, you're just sitting there thinking, oh, I'm just using Uber and this would be really easy to build this app. But that usability piece of it, I think, is absolutely fundamental and crucial. And uh, I think they've done an outstanding job of it. And now they've got so much money and revenue that they can keep plowing into it that I think it just keeps getting better and better from a usability perspective. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's kind of, it's now reinforcing the boat, right? And um, we've, we've seen news out in the last month or so that, there's potentially a takeover on, on the table here for Grubhub, which from what I can tell will only serve to reinforce that market share, particularly in the US and, and a little bit further abroad. How are you seeing that um, 
play out and, and do you see the deal you know, going ahead and, and all these types of things? It's been part of our thesis that, so again, a little bit of the layout here. Most people think the rides part of Uber is loss making and it's not. It's actually already profitable and it's getting more profitable very quickly. So uh, that's a very common misconception. And I had a lot of feedback from people where I just wrote back to them and said, have you actually read the latest annual report and where is your view of this coming from? And it's, you know, two years ago I looked at the IPO or it's it's an old perception of the business. So I think that that shows you that the path is towards profitability in that side of the business. I think you need consolidation on the food delivery side of things and I think it, it is going to happen. Um, the hurdle with Grubhub is going to be regulatory and I think the, the sentiment particularly in the US at the moment is, is um, very anti any sort of consolidation. So to the extent that regulators can stop that from happening, they probably will. But I think long term the market will actually benefit from two rational players here that have got big networks and can spread the, the costs over a much larger number of people. Even the network effects in food delivery of being able to deliver three or four meals with one driver because you've got the density that you need to do that, the economics of that are dramatically better and therefore you can do it for a lower price uh, than having four people that are all, you know, you've got four different people walking into the same restaurant and then delivering the food to different places. So I think you're going to see uh, rationalisation there either through people just pulling out or through the sort of consolidation that we, they're talking about with Grubhub and Uber. Um, I think it'd be very good for the investment case if it happens and experts in the space are saying it is a decent chance of happening. I just think the political environment makes it difficult at the moment. So I wouldn't bet my life on that happening uh, soon, but I think in five years' time, you're going to have a bunch of geographical markets that look very similar to ride sharing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because obviously the, the eats business, if for people who live in or around the CBDs of Australia, they would be familiar with the business and how convenient it is. Um, but they probably see all different types of scooters going past outside. And we've, we've had some here in Australia file bankruptcy or, you know, pretty much just go out of business completely. And um, you, you, you can only imagine that there's going to be some consolidation. And I think with the, the share prices and, and the returns some of these companies are generating, um, you know, you spoke about it in the blog that they're probably this fragmented industry does need to consolidate. It's just a matter of when and how it happens. Um, you know, if this deal doesn't go ahead, then maybe, you know, Uber's still okay and it's still going to, you know, continue eating into that market share of the competitors. Um, one thing you mentioned before was your entry price around $23, $24, uh, the valuation of the business at that time. But it also has quite a few minority holdings, right? Like in other listed businesses. Yep. So, yeah. So, again, another one of the, I think, criticisms of the business was they're hell-bent on global expansion and they're going to keep losing money in places like China and India forever. And I mean, the biggest change and, and the biggest confirmation for me that the new CEO is going to deliver has been exiting those markets. But they didn't just walk away. They mostly exchanged their businesses there for a share of the largest ride-sharing businesses in uh, China, Singapore. They own a bunch of these things around the world. It's hard to put a, a clear... I mean, it, it's similar to Uber in you've got to forecast when the business is going to turn to profitability, but they're on the balance sheet at $10 billion and even the stake in the Chinese business alone I can see being worth a decent chunk of that $10 billion. So I don't 
you know, is it worth 20 or is it worth five? I don't have a really strong view and I don't think that dictated the investment case. Certainly when it was $24, it becomes more important at today's price of 36. Uh, but those stakes are, are very, very valuable. And, and I think if you look at how much cash they burned there and what they've got back in terms of the stakes of the business, it actually wasn't, you know, economic suicide either. It was establish a beachhead, use it for your strategic advantage and get something in exchange for it. And, yeah, there's probably some markets where the net net has been negative, but even going back and looking at the way they expanded and the things that everyone was critical of them for, you need to put that in the context of they've ended up with a, a big stake in some pretty valuable businesses as well. Yeah, I think you said in your write-up um, something like 100 cities for the Uber Eats business are already profitable. And like you said, the, the rides business is already profitable and they've got these minority stakes. So if you're kind of thinking about this, some of the parts kind of valuation, it doesn't, particularly from the price that you got in, it, it doesn't take a lot to get to something that is very realistic. And if you can look past those headline figures, which people seem to be jumping to, um, you know, it, it falls well and truly into that bucket of, you know, there's a lot of value there. Um, big corporate overhead here. You've got a lot of share-based compensation. I think all of those things are important to factor into that. So, you know, they report rides as a standalone segment, but I sit there and I say, well, I need to allocate a fairly decent chunk of all this overhead that they're spending elsewhere uh, into that part of the business. But I still think that is absolutely right. You didn't need to be, there's some really, really conservative assumptions at $24 that still got you to a profitable outcome from there. It is, it is harder for me at, at 36, it's not the same. You, know, mm. you need a few more things to go right. I think they will go right. I still think the balance of probabilities are in your favour, but it's not the same equation that it was at um, you know, substantially lower prices. Um, one thing you mentioned to me uh, just in passing on Twitter was that um, you know these types of environments where you know see these dislocations, this uncertainty, are kind of it's your time to shine as a as an investor and as a business. I'm interested to know how, I guess, how you reacted when it all happened. Because, you know, if I'm looking for a fund manager, I want them to have these ideas on the table ready to go. Like you said, you, you reacted pretty quickly to Uber. Um, how did you feel about, you know, were, were you more excited by some of the, the prices you were seeing in the market over the past couple of months? And uh, are you as excited to, to see those play out now? Yeah, it's really interesting and we've been doing a lot of introspection internally. Uh, it's probably since your podcast, it might have actually been that, the catalyst, but we've had a really, really horrible, horrible couple of years in our Australian fund. Like The performance has been absolutely terrible in that fund and we've done a lot of reflecting around you know, what was in our control and outside our control. It's obviously been a horrible period for value investing in general, but we also... You know, got some things very wrong and stuffed some, some things up and we spent a lot of time thinking about how we avoid doing that again, what we need to get right. And I think one of the mistakes that we've made historically is that we are contrarian, we like investing in things that other people are pessimistic about at a point in time uh, and we do that very, very well. We've, mm -hmm. just, we've just come out of this crisis and made enormous amounts of money for our clients by buying at the bottom I think we can do that because we've got the psychological makeup. So Gareth Brown, who I've worked with for a very long time, and I are sitting there on the 23rd of March saying, you know, this is it. This is as crazy a market as we've ever seen. And you buy when other people are fearful. And you touched earlier that a lot of people are sitting there at that point in time and going, oh, yeah, but mm -hmm. you know, this might be really bad and it could be really horrible. And 
the, the thing to understand is you don't get those opportunities unless you're feeling like that. It's just not going to happen, right? You're not going to be sitting there saying, oh, everything's going to be fine and I'm buying prices at 40%. Some cases, 70, 80, 90% on an individual stock basis, less than I was two months ago. So it, it's almost a prerequisite and it is something that we get excited about. You know, we've been we were down to fumes in terms of our cash levels through that period and we were juggling things around trying to get it right in terms of the allocation and we're very excited about it. I've been a bit surprised, I guess, about some of the other quite contrarian investors out of this that have come out of it very, very conservatively, even gone too significantly more cash through that period. But anyway, that's a bit of context. We do do it well. I think we've made the mistake historically of trying to do it all the time. Now, I need to be contrarian and I want to, I want to go and find the stock that everyone hates and buy it. And I think that there are, it's actually most of the time in financial markets, people are doing a pretty good job of pricing things fairly sensibly. And there's nothing wrong for us as a fund manager and as a fund about just being sensible. And we might have to be sensible for seven or eight years. We own a good collection of decent businesses and we think they're going to provide us adequate returns. And then we go through this market meltdown and that's where we add all of our significant value by getting out there and buying the right businesses for clients at that point in time. And it's something I need to control as the CIO of the business. Uh, we've got a lot more depth in the team now. We've, we've brought um, new people into the international fund to work alongside Gareth and that bench that you talk about being ready to invest. You know, our US exposure would have been 10 or 15% probably this time last year. And we'd now be, 40 or 45 and we've been able to pick up some world-class us businesses because of some of the extra talent that we've brought into the business but my job as cio is to stand back and say this is the time for us to be pulling the trigger and being aggressive and being really contrarian and you know what there are other times when the dial just needs to be turned to this is a normal market we need to be sensible we want to own decent quality businesses that are going to give us a bit of um ammunition, firepower to, to make the most of those opportunities when the meltdown comes. So, yeah, it's been great for us and I've absolutely loved the past few months because we're back in an environment where we thrive. We just need to make sure that we do a better job in, in more difficult environments for us. You know, this is the environment that's actually easy for us. Uh, we need to make sure we do better a better job in the environments when everyone's a bit more optimistic and we just need to accept that that's a market where we're less likely to add extreme amounts of value. Yeah, I think it's um, like you, you see this, you, you go through years, you look at the, the big falls and the, the crashes and you, and you know that if you're a value investor who's done your work, that's the key phrase that you've done your work, these are the, the, the days that you look for. And I think if I just, you know, if I do a bit of a thumb suck, put my finger to the wind here, it, it seems to me that this good patch, if I could call it that for... Um, value investors and for people that look for this um, deep value, uh, I think the good times should continue. If I, if I was to say, you know, balance of probabilities, it's probably like with the economic news we're seeing with some of the uncertainty in global markets, this is a time that personally I'd want to be, um, be looking at these exposures. So I think um, I'm, well, I am really excited to see how it plays out for you, mate. I hope that the next time we have a call and the next time we have a, have a chat like this, um, you can look back and you can say, you know what, that second time round was actually pretty good for us. It was a, it was a, time, a point in time where we, where we looked up. So once again, Steve, um, as always, mate, I appreciate your insights. I appreciate you, you taking the time out to, to speak with us. Been great, on. Thanks a lot.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.